1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food. Health and Agriculture, and fine Food Truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome Professor John Pastor. He has a Ph.D. from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Forestry and Soil Science, and he received his Master's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Soil Science, and a B.S., from the University of Pennsylvania in Geology. I happened to meet John at a gathering, and we were talking about some of the issues that he faces in Minnesota. He is affiliated with the Department of Biology at the University of Minnesota in Duluth. I was so fascinated by some of the research that he was doing that I thought, let's have you come on and tell your own story. So, Dr. Passer, welcome.
0: Well, thank you, Melinda, nice to be on.
1: You have been with the Natural Resources Research Institute at the University of Minnesota for decades. Tell me how you got there and how your interest in ecology first began.
0: Oh, well, that's a long story. I guess, like many people who became ecologists or work in natural history, it goes back to childhood. My grandparents had a farm that I more or less grew up on, it's so a half, half mile or so from my parents house, and my grandfather and I would spend a lot of time in the woods and working on the farm and stuff. So that was, I guess, the beginning of it. But then in college, like you mentioned, I majored in geology as an undergraduate. I was interested more in environmental geology and quaternary geology, the geology since the Ice Ages, than in hard rock geology. And then I went to work as a consulting geologist for a civil engineering company after graduation, doing a lot of environmental impact statements, surveys, things like that, but decided that I really needed to get at least a master's degree to go on professionally. At the same time, a professor of mine at Pennsylvania was moving to Wisconsin, and he called me up and said that he had a grant to work in Antarctica, and would I like to I'm as a graduate student, so I said, sure, no problem. <laughs> and I gave my two weeks notice and went to Wisconsin. And working in Antarctica, this was more geology, even though it was a soils degree. We were looking at soil formation and uh, on moraines in the Taylor Dry Valley to figure out the geologic history of the Antarctic mainland. And many of these soils we were looking at were four million years old, but very, very little soil development. And so it was at that point that I thought, oh, you know, plants must be really important in soil development. And so for my Ph.D., I sort of made a little mid-course correction and switched to a combination of forestry, which is where forest ecology was based at Wisconsin, and soil science and worked in northern Wisconsin on uh, aspen ecosystems. So that's how I kind of got into ecology through the back door as a geologist. And unlike many of my colleagues here in the biology department, I've never taken a course in cell biology or genetics or anything like that. I've just sort of learned that on my own. But one of the things you learn in geology is to take a very big picture, long-term view of biological processes or the history of the earth. And so I think I I really value my geology background because it brings a different viewpoint to biological problems than many other people have.
1: Oh, I agree with you. I didn't realize that you had spent time in Antarctica when we first met. And I think that this longer view perspective is extremely unique to those who study those fields because most of us seem to be more geared for instant gratification or short-term gains without really looking at long-term consequences or right. unintended
0: consequences. Right.
1: So how do you... I mean,
0: to a geologist, 10,000 years is a short time.
1: Right? Yeah, right. So, you know,
0: so when people want answers in four years, I say, or even this year. Yeah. I say, what are you kidding? <laughs> it's, it, it can't be done. Right. And so even in ecology, there are processes like population cycles that play out, over 10 or 20 years. You know, climate change is a long, slow thing. The change in climate since the glaciers left resulted in a change of forests over the last 10,000 years, and, and the forests are still responding to that. And so, you know, these kinds of problems that we're faced with in basic ecology or in environmental issues are really long-term problems, and they can't be solved in a year. They mm-hmm. they really can't be solved in five years. They just take a long time to really understand what's going on here.
1: Now, do you have a hard time even relating this idea of these long-term visions to your grant funders as well as your students?
0: No, not to the grant funders, not to the National Science Foundation, which really is favoring long-term research these days, and not to the students. They understand it. It's more to, oh, elected officials, business people who want things done quickly. Their vision is on, you know, a quarterly budget statement or a two-year election cycle. And the world they live in, there's almost no point in thinking beyond that. Right. And we just live in different worlds and speak different languages. And it, oftentimes when I say in order to address this particular issue, I need six or eight years. And people say, well, we don't have six or eight years. And I say, well, but that's how long it's going to take. That's the way nature works. And it's not nature's fault that you don't have six or eight years. You should have come and talked to me six or eight years ago. And the the world that many people live in, political or business or economic, I'm not disparaging it or anything, but – People say, well, that's the real world. And to me, no, no, that's a made up world. Human beings made that up. You know, the real world is the world of the woods and the prairies and the lakes that have evolved over millennia. And that's the real world. And that world can survive very well without us and has survived very well without us in the past. But the, you know, the human world is not the real world. And just because, as human beings, we've made these economic and political structures that work on quarterly and annual and two year cycles four year cycles at the most for a presidential election, the natural world is not compelled to to follow those that time scale of things. What do you think
1: is the best approach for shifting how we think about? these time frames. I mean, you're right. We are so entrenched in those quarterly reports and election cycles, and if we're really going to protect the environment, if I'm understanding you correctly, we have to take this much broader view. How do you think we go about shifting that mindset?
0: Well, education, for one, we have to do a stronger job of educating our students about this, being more explicit about it. But even then, you know, many students they might take a biology course and then, you know, major in political science or something and go on and they don't remember a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what would be really helpful is if we had some elected officials that understood this and spoke up about it. And a while ago a colleague and I were talking and we we were talking about politics and stuff and we said So who is the Gaylord Nelson of today? You know, Gaylord Nelson was a senator from Wisconsin who started Earth Day. And then we started thinking of other people of that generation back in the 60s and 70s. Stuart and Mo Udall. Stuart Udall was the Department of Interior. Moe Udall was the uh, senator from Arizona. Frank Church, the author of the Wilderness Act from Idaho. In Minnesota here, we had a congressman, Bruce Vento who was a biology teacher, but a really staunch and eloquent supporter of conservation and the environment and what amazed us when we said this so who who is the Gaylord Nelson of today? we couldn 't think of anybody. Mm-hmm. There are no politicians out there that it's that are playing this role that are speaking eloquently in Congress and in the state legislatures about the need for conservation and the need for taking a long-term, broader view of these things and the need for patience in dealing with environmental issues. And that was kind of sad, and I don't know why that is. So when this is an election year and when elected officials are coming to Duluth and asking for my vote, I'm going to say, so you could be the next Gaylord Nelson. Why aren't you the next Gaylord Nelson? And I think they have to hear that from a lot of people. Some people say, well, you're the scientist. You have the data. Why doesn't that data convince them? And I said, well, first place, they don't always understand it. But second place, there aren't enough scientists to form a voting block. They really don't care. And what would help is if the public started raising these issues to elected officials, particularly when they come asking for your vote, Asking things like, what do you plan to do about climate change in your new position? And that doesn't matter whether they're on the city council or the mayor or they're running for Senate. At every one of these levels, they can do something. And I think we have to raise this and hold their feet to the fire and say, you need to do this. You need to be today's Gaylord Nelson. You need to speak up eloquently about this. And I think if a 100 people said this to them during the course of the election, I think they might start paying attention. Without that leadership in Congress or in the state legislators or whatever, it's extremely difficult to get this point across.
1: And I don't even think that it would take a 100 voices. Uh, from what I understand, if you get five calls on an issue, it garners greater attention. I don't know how empowered people feel anymore in reaching out to the legislators, but I'm with you in terms of it is extremely important. I mean, we know that if we don't speak out, nothing will happen, so we might as well give it a shot. But we have to be informed. It's always helpful to have, you know, the, the talking points available and to understand a little bit about the subject. So let's give people a concrete example, and I think your research on Minnesota's wild rice is a great example. So you've been doing some research. I know that one of your graduate student projects, actually, she did a thesis, and it was Wild Rice, the Dynamics of its Population Cycles, and the Debate Over its Control at the Minnesota Legislature, which I saw Mm -hmm. that title and I thought, Wow, you mean it's the wild rice is controlled at the Minnesota Legislature? This is curious, and I learned that wild rice was Minnesota's state grain. It's not really rice, by the way. It's an annual watergrass seed. It's delicious. So, tell me a little bit about your research and why it's important for all of us to not only know about it but also speak up about it.
0: Well, yeah, this is really interesting, and. This has a long, long history. Wild rice is, for the Indian people up here who are Ojibwe, Chippewa it's sometimes called, wild rice is a staple food, but it's also a very sacred food to them. Their origin stories all revolve around wild rice. And when the reservations were first set up here in northern Minnesota, the Indian agents kept the best wild rice stands for themselves, and they set up the reservations for the the tribes in pretty crappy areas. So the tribes have, and various things have happened over the years to impinge on the wild rice. And so the tribes for a long time have had, well, kind of um, have felt shut out of things about wild rice. A number of years ago, about 20, 30 years ago, the university agronomy department went to the tribes and said, look, why don't we work together and, you know, we'd like to work with you on improving productivity of wild rice. And the tribe said, okay, fine, we can work with you. And so they got a lot of wild rice seed from the tribal areas, which were now – the best place to have wild rice because wild rice in much of the rest of the state had been over-harvested or, you know, the lakes don't support it now for whatever reason. And so the the tribes on the reservations now had the best stands of wild rice. And so hybrid versions, not GMO, but hybrid versions of varieties of wild rice were developed, and this started what's called the paddy wild rice industry in Minnesota – And the tribes harvest wild rice in the traditional way with a canoe and by hand. The paddy wild rice industry is like harvesting wild rice as if it's wheat. The farmers grow it in the field, they flood a field, they plant wild rice, and then after the seeds are ripe in August, they drain the field and they go in with combines and harvest it. So this is, it's the same species but it's really a very different kind of grain. And it's sold as wild rice, but it has to be packaged either cultivated wild rice, which is paddy wild rice, or hand-harvested or natural wild rice, which largely comes from the reservations. And it tastes different, and it's just a different kind of grain. So then what happened was there was a movement. Uh, people started talking about GMOs and stuff, and the tribes said, you know, by treaty rights, we have access to wild rice throughout the state, which they actually do, and not the paddy wild rice that's grown on private land, but in public lakes throughout the state. And they said, we don't want any talk about GMOs. And I think there was a little bit of a misunderstanding because the agronomy department was going to use some molecular techniques to identify genes that were already in the wild rice population that they would then select through standard method breeding methods to do they weren't going to introduce foreign genes from another organism into the wild rice but anyhow it, it became a big to-do and monsanto got involved in everything else so we started working with the tribes on a part of wild rice just basic ecology the wild rice goes through population cycles of four years so there's a boom and bust cycle, and every four years you go from a productive year to an unproductive year to a recovery back to a productive year. And we were just working with the tribes on trying to understand e- the basic ecology of that, why that was happening and so forth. And we are funded by the National Science Foundation to do this. But at the same time, this GMO wild rice controversy came up, and this particular student of mine was interested in that too. So her thesis was sort of half on the experiments we were doing on the population cycles of wild rice. And then the other half, she said, well, I'd like to write a paper on just this whole GMO controversy and the legislative history of dealing with the tribes about wild rice and other resources and stuff. And I said, go ahead. And so she teamed up with a uh, an American Indian graduate student, and they wrote a paper which was published in the Hamlin University Law Review. And I think it's the only paper funded through the National Science Foundation that's been published in a law review journal. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite entirely sure about that, but I've never found another one. So that was kind of neat. She just kind of combined these two things together. And we've been working with the tribes ever since on various issues surrounding the ecology of wild rice. But the important thing is that she felt that the whole GMO stuff was being discussed in a big vacuum of... What is the the Native Americans' view of the ecology of wild rice? What is the science behind how wild rice ecosystems works? And what exactly is genetic engineering and genetic modification? And what would that do if it was, in fact, introduced, if GMOs were introduced into wild rice populations? And so it was a real kind of a wake-up call, I think, to, to me and to a lot of other people, that, the policy makers were talking about things, but they were talking about things in a vacuum, mm-hmm. uh, without any understanding of the long-term ecology, the long-term tribal traditions concerning wild rice, and that talking into a, in a vacuum just exacerbated the controversy and the, the, the bad feelings about the whole thing.
1: Let me take one moment, Dr. Pastor, and remind our listeners that they are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. John Pastor, who is a professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth in the Department of Biology, and we are talking about native rice, helping natural ecosystems, looking at research and politics all combined. So, with regard to what your student learned about the Native American view versus how politicians see the situation, what was she left with? You know, what did she come away with in terms of where she felt her
0: next steps needed to be? Well, she finished her Ph.D., and she's actually working for a uh, environmental consulting engineering company called Bar Engineering on issues surrounding wild rice and native wetlands and stuff. And so this... Engineering Company, which is a very good company here it's won all kinds of awards, hired her because of her her knowledge of of wild rice and and native american issues so that that was good it was a it actually was an important part of her getting a job mm-hmm. so but where where it's going now is the uh wild rice biologists and the water quality biologists for the tribes came to me and said. In the middle of these experiments on these, these long-term experiments on population cycles, and they said, you know, there's a problem that's kind of on the horizon that we'd like you to think about helping us with, and that concerns sulfate discharge from mines. We have a lot of iron mines up here, and in particular, there's talk about a new copper-nickel mine being built up here, in which the ore is particularly high in, in sulfur. And many of the rivers that flow off the mining district flow into the St. Louis River, which flows through one of the major reservations here. And so they were concerned about sulfate building up in the water and harming the the rice. And this, to give you an idea, the state standard for sulfate in wild rice waters is 10 parts per million, which is very low. Drinking water is 250 parts per million, so 25 times higher for drinking water, but wild rice is 25 times lower.
1: Wow, that's
0: interesting. Where that came from was a study that was done by a biologist with our Department of Natural Resources back in the 1940s where he found that wild rice generally did not grow in lakes in which the sulfate concentrations exceeded 10 parts per million, 10 milligrams per liter, so that's all they had at that point to make the state standard. And they didn't really pay it. The state didn't really pay attention to the standard. It didn't enforce it for a long time. You know, it just didn't seem to be an, a big issue that they wanted to put their effort in. Well, with the proposal to build a new large copper nickel mine, this be- has now become a big issue. And my initial response to the tribes was, sulfur is really complicated. I don't work on sulfur. You're going to have to find someone else. And they said, no, no, we need you to do it. We need you to do it. We trust you. We, we need you to do it. So I said, okay, but I'll need a little bit of money. I can't do it on the NSF money because it's a different problem. So they actually gave me a little bit of money to do some pilot experiments to get started. And what we found was we grew wild rice in buckets, in which we added wild rice sediment from Wild Rice Lake, one plant in each bucket, and then we added different amounts of sulfate. And what we found was that the uh, growth of the plant was a little stunted when you added more and more sulfate. But in particular, what happened was the seeds became lighter in weight and some of the seeds weren't filled out. Mm -hmm. So we did that for two years. Mm -hmm. We did it one year, was able to repeat it the next year, And then the tribe said, well, let's keep going. And I said, well, if we want to keep going, what do we have to do is grow wild rice in populations and stock tanks and really set it up like a long-term experiment to really understand this. One of the things I really like about working with the tribal biologists and the tribes is they do take a long-term view of things. This is just part of the tribal culture to think many, many generations forward. Mm And so they said, okay, fine. You know, it was great. Okay, you need five more years, fine. So we started working on this and then the mining controversy has really heated up now. And so the state added some more money to what we we're doing and we became part of a larger team. Uh, one group of people did, went out to lots of different wild rice lakes and did surveys of the wild rice growth and the uh, water chemistry and sediment chemistry. And what we did was we developed hydroponic methods for growing wild rice in the lab where we could really control the chemistry of the water. And then we did stock tank experiments where we grew wild rice populations in stock tanks. And after we're in our fourth year of these experiments now, and basically what we found is that the sulfate does not affect the growth of the wild rice. What happens is the sulfate, when it gets into the sediment, there are bacteria in the sediment of wild rice wetlands, and like many wetlands, that there's no oxygen in the sediment. And so what these bacteria do is they strip the oxygen from the sulfur that's in the sulfate molecule, and they kind of use that oxygen. But in the process, they're converting the sulfur to another form called sulfide, particularly hydrogen sulfide. And this is that rotten egg smell that you get sometimes in really wet soils. Well, that sulfide is really toxic to anything that breathes oxygen, including wild rice. And what that sulfide was doing was it was inhibiting the growth of the seedlings. It was causing increased mortality of the seedlings when they were just tiny little seedlings, You wouldn't even see these seedlings in the water because they're two feet underwater. But in our experiments, we could demonstrate this. And the other thing that was happening, it was precipitating with iron on the roots and coating the roots. And the roots were black in those tanks. That's the iron sulfide coating. And we're doing some experiments this summer. What I think is happening is that's inhibiting the uptake of nutrients. And so the seeds are not getting filled out. Only forty percent of the seeds get filled out in the tanks with high amounts of sulfate and those that do get filled out are lighter in weight, so they have a lower germination possibility the next year. Doctor Caster?
1: We just have one one minute left, unfortunately. And this has been a really interesting dialogue about how we now how we now have to weigh, it seems, the mining industry versus the wild rice production in Minnesota. I'm wondering where you might refer our listeners if they want to learn more or take action steps on this.
0: Well, there are a number of organizations that they can contact. One is the Friends of the Boundary Waters. Much of this has taken place just outside of the Boundary Waters or the Sierra Club chapter here in Minnesota. Okay. Or they could go to the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency website Where our reports, somewhere on that website, they can find our reports. Okay. And read them and think about it. But the, I guess the, the point, the point I'm trying to make is that this research has taken four or five years at minimum to figure out what's going on there. And it's a very, very complicated system. And if we are going to protect it, we really have to understand what is going on ecologically.
1: Well, I want to thank you so much for raising awareness about this issue. I will provide web links both to your website at the Department of Biology as well as the Friends of the Boundary Waters and Sierra Club in Minnesota. In closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. We have been speaking with Dr. John Pastor. He is with the Department of Biology at the University of Minnesota Duluth doing long-term research on issues that affect our lives every day. Thank you so much for being my guest, Dr. Pastor.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me.